We have this astonishing situation where now governments and activists are demanding that companies do things and make promises that they can't deliver on and then government regulators come along and fine them for not <laughs> delivering on what they never could do. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we, we have this whole nasty, vicious cycle of, of expectations and behaviours that are entirely inconsistent with the idea of a company trying to earn a profit by selling goods and services to willing customers. Environmental, social and governance investing has become increasingly popular worldwide, particularly with institutional investors and policymakers. Advocates claim ESG investing delivers long-term sustainability and responsible corporate behaviour while ensuring profitable returns. Critics of ESG, however, worry that it is full of greenwashing, compromises investment performance and could even be counterproductive. Welcome back to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the IEA's Director of Public Policy and Communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question. Today's question, is ESG investing broken? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by Professor Sinclair Davidson from the RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. He's an adjunct fellow at the free market think tank, the Institute of Public Affairs, and he has an expansive list of publications across academic journals and newspapers. And he's most recently the author of a paper for the ARC Research Conference, who benefits the real impact of ESG investing, which wrote with Scott Hargraves. Welcome to the podcasting. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. Let's start with uh, probably a golden question of what is ESG investing and what, what does it promise? So ESG investing is a investment strategy that is intended to do good while making astonishing profits. So the argument is, is that you can make the world a better place and earn very high investment profits at the same time. Um, and the argument has been that we've seen successes in the past. If you kind of think um, the, the pressures against uh, slavery, so the abolition of slavery, is supposed to have added economic value to the world. Uh, the disinvestment campaign against South Africa in the 1980s is supposed to have been a precursor to this. So people can point to some successes, but in the last 20 years or so, we've seen this turn into a massive industry where fund managers have promised the earth while delivering substantially less. So we've seen a, a significant growth in ESG investing with probably trillions now under management in, in ESG funds, by, depending on how you calculate it, which we'll get to in a second. Where do you think this comes from? What, what is the impetus? Is there uh, an underlying public demand here that we sometimes hear about from advocates of ESG that what people want is ESG investing, that that, that um, they're expected to do ESG investing. They don't have if, if they don't have a choice but to do ESG investing because there's such strong public interest. Um, I think there's a combination of factors. I think at heart a lot of people want to be good moral people. They mm. want to think that they are adding value to the world. They want to think that through their choices they can make the world a better place. So there is that. And when somebody comes to you and says, well, not only can you make the world a better place, you can get rich doing it at the same time by following my investment strategy, um, this is a too-good-to-be-true story. And, of course, as we know with too-good-to-be-true stories, they are too good to be true. Well, it's, it's probably worth then also thinking about um, this, this kind of central question here that, that you go to quite a lot in your paper, uh, which is about how ESG is measured, because this has become quite a, a controversial story, particularly in the UK, but I, I assume in other jurisdictions as well, about whether or not there, there's really some quite fundamental problems 
we're trying to assess what is ESG, what fulfills environmental social governance standards, and is there this risk of greenwashing um, and poor assessment? So part of the problem is, is that we start off by saying, well, let's not invest in, say, fossil fuels, or let's not invest in tobacco products, or let's not invest in armaments. So that's like a, to filter things out. Now, on the one hand, you may say, well, if you're not in fossil fuels at the moment, that's, that, that's a big investment mistake. On the other hand, we could say, well, if you're not in fossil fuels, there's all sorts of other things you can invest in. So that's the one part of it. The other part of it is a lot of investment funds like to track indices. So there's been a huge demand over the last while to create these so-called sustainability indices. Now the challenge there is what goes into the index and what does not. And when you have multiple parties creating these indices that ESG funds are supposed to be tracking, you would hope that there's a very high correlation between these funds. And when academics have analysed these indices, they've actually kind of found that A, uh, they're not very highly correlated and B, very often they don't really seem to be doing what they promised to be doing. So, for example, we may think that a, a sustainability fund should not have fossil fuels. But some ESG funds might say, well, we will have the best-in-class fossil fuel in our portfolio. So people don't quite know what they're buying and a lot of these indices are tracking very different things and calling it the same thing. So there's a lot of confusion in the market as to what it is and what it isn't. And unsurprisingly... Uh, um, Investors have gotten confused and regulators have become somewhat impatient. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of an interesting question here, which is traditionally in an in a investment in a market decision, it, it's usually, unlike, let's say, a policy decision, it's usually quite clear what you want to achieve. You, you want to get a profit. Yes. Um, and it's quite a, a clear link there between profit and uh, that you expect from your investor. You know, there's, there's a lot of institutional investors that are involved in this. But when you start trying to achieve other goals, it one particular ones that are difficult to measure, you're going to end up in a bit of a messy position, aren't you, where you're not really ever certain that you're going to deliver on that? Well, the, the real challenge with the ESG investment is that they kind of led people to believe there were no trade-offs. Um, if you think of the story of the Puritans in the 19th century who were opposed to slavery, they knew they were going to not make as much money as they otherwise would have, um, but they were prepared not to invest in slaves. Um, and some people who don't want to invest in, say, gambling stocks or tobacco stocks or what have you, they're actually making a conscious decision, um, we are not going to earn as high a return as we thought we would. The ESG investors have, been, have, have promised people the best of both worlds, that you can actually get these higher returns at lower risks and avoid these so-called economic bads. So um, when you say to somebody there's no trade-off, um, certainly investors and economists should immediately become suspicious because they, we know there are always trade-offs. Yeah, you interestingly quote in the um, uh, article you've written, Tarek Fancy, who's the former chief investment officer uh, for sustainable investment at BlackRock, who said that the, the BlackRock's been very important at promoting this idea that ESG promotes higher returns, but describe this as a hopeful idea rather than something that's kind yes. of proven in reality. Let, let's get into that. What, what is the kind of more recent research? Because I think there have been a lot of claims, or at least some studies have shown that ESG investing makes just as good, if not better, returns. Yes, so the, the, the academic literature tends to be all over the place, with the older literature tending to suggest that it is profitable, and the more recent literature suggesting that it is not as profitable. Now, what has happened is that uh, techniques have become more refined, methodologies have improved, 
um, data collection periods have actually expanded. So we would actually expect to find that the more recent studies are more reliable than the older studies. The other thing to bearing in mind is that the world has come out of a very unusual period in economic history where interest rates were very low for a very long period of time. And that is not a normal situation. And up until 18 months ago, everybody was saying this was the new normal. Well, we've actually seen in the last 18 months interest rates around the world returning to levels that were sort of pre-GFC levels. And the old normal has kind of come back in more or less the way we would expect. So there are no free lunches. And ESG was promising a free lunch. And when interest rates moved above what effectively is zero, all of a sudden the no free lunch rule came back into vogue and actually applies again. So another potential criticism you could say is that doesn't really matter. Um, maybe people are willing to sacrifice uh, some profit for some social good in their investing. That a lot of the ESG funding is people, let's say, going into their pension fund and choosing the ESG option. Um, is that something different, though? Uh, that, that is something very different. Um, you may decide as a person that you don't want to invest in, say, defence stocks, uh, that, that war is somehow immoral, you're not going to do that. Um, but what has happened here in the UK, for example, is that I think recently the Defence Minister came out and said it's all very well saying we don't want to invest in defence stocks, but we actually do need to have companies providing national security and making armaments and doing all this sort of stuff. So there is a cost to doing that at, at a societal level. But generally speaking, if somebody genuinely said, I don't want to invest in fossil fuels, I don't want to invest in defence stocks, they should be allowed to do that. The challenge comes in is when people unknowingly are invested in ESG-type funds, or if um, the, the investment funds are claiming that ESG funds are outperforming non-ESG funds, and then people choose to invest in those things on the basis of an investment claim. That, quite frankly, is actually fraud, um, and we should see it as being fraud. The other challenge that we have is that a lot of nations around the world um, have compulsory superannuation or pension plans, where people voluntarily or involuntarily, how you want to describe it, they are required to make a, a payment to a pension plan or a superannuation fund over their working lives to finance their retirement. Those sorts of funds should be maximising the returns for the retirees or the pensioners. They should not be engaging in making other choices on behalf of the pensioners that they think the pensioner might have wanted to have made. So we, we have that problem is what is the purpose of the, of, of the fund? What should it be doing? What is it doing? And then we have, on top of that, issues of fraud, uh, uh, greenwashing, and also what uh, um, the US presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy has called is green smuggling, where we actually have fund managers imposing their own preferences on companies by saying, you have to invest in such and such a way in order to get our funding. Now, that also is kind of immoral if the eventual beneficiary of the fund is not making that choice. Yeah, interesting enough, there's been a, a bit of a backlash, which we can get into as well in a, in a second, against their sense of, particularly from um, state-based uh, public pension funds in the US. It seems like what you're describing there, though, is a bit of a principal agent problem, yes. which is we entrust these massive uh, institutional investors like BlackRock with huge amounts of capital, and we say, go off and invest that. And are they investing that in the, in the way that we expect? Do they have too much power as, as institutional investors to, to push a certain, I suppose, political agenda, what they believe to be morally righteous, rather than what might actually 
benefit the investors? Yes, so we actually have a double principal agent problem. So in the bad old days, we had um, shareholders would buy shares in companies and the management would deploy that money to their own pre personal preferences. Now what happens, and, and that was the original... That, that's Milton Friedman's kind of stakeholder, shareholder capitalism yes, issue. Yes, 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 yes. And, and there's a massive economic literature on that very point that developed over, over a long period of time. Adam, Adam Smith wrote about it in the you know, East, India, East India Company misusing... Uh, the investors' stock. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. So this is a problem that the economists have been aware of for for, for decades and, and, and centuries. In the case of Adam Smith's uh, critique of the East India Company, um, what has happened in the last, say, forty years, fifty years from the nineteen seventies, was the rise of passive investment funds. So rather than people choosing to invest in particular stocks, what they would do is they would give their money to a passive investor. That passive investor would then buy up the market or would make active decisions on behalf of their, of their own investors. So what we have now is the problem is that the original, what we would call shareholder, gives their money to a pension fund or investment fund of some sort. That investment fund then makes further investments. So we have a principal agent problem between the fund and the company, and we have a principal agent problem between the original investor and the fund. And so we actually have this doubling up of principal agency problems, which more or less means at the end of the day, the, the original beneficiary is now twice removed from the company in which they own and don't actually know what is going on. And they have no incentive to find out and they don't find out. So more or less, management can do what they like to the extent they can get away with it. And the fund can do what they like to the extent that they can get away with it. And there is no actual economic oversight of both of those relationships. Is there an issue here as well that now that there's an ESG industry, there's, there's people who you know, have it in their interest to be getting, I suppose, a higher fee to assess the ESG suitability of a company. You have a ratings agency who might be paid by a company to get an assessment of how to improve their ESG rating within the system. Is, is there you know, a certain kind of latched on system of, of people who, who do themselves serve to benefit as part of this? Um, yes, there is. There is the, the, the classic middle person sort of kind of problem where people are providing goods and services into an industry. Now, normally, this wouldn't be too much of a problem. If ESG was actually delivering on the promise that it makes, that you can earn higher returns by investing in a particular way, then these people would be adding value into the system. We know that they're not adding value into the system because we can observe the ESG returns. We know that on a risk-adjusted basis, they are either equal to non-ESG funds or worse than non-ESG funds. So therefore, that entire ESG industry, which is built up there, is actually pure waste. If it was adding value, we would say, well, are they, are they adding you know, value for buck, uh, a bang for buck, but certainly when ESG performance is not as good as the alternatives, then we know that is all pure waste. So we should look at all of those things and say, well, are you serving the investors as a whole? Are you serving people who voluntarily want to invest in ESG? And we've actually seen the flows of money going into uh, dedicated ESG funds over the last 18 months actually declining. So people are no longer voluntarily investing in these things and we would expect that entire ESG industry to actually uh, contract. For people who, who do kind of want to genuinely achieve better environmental social outcomes, for example, governance outcomes, is, is ESG, I suppose, actually achieving those goals? Is, is, the, is it moving, you know, let, let's say um, we could fix up 
all the problems you're talking about when it comes to like, maybe measurement, let's say we could fix up all your problems to do with it only being people who really choose to be in ESG, um, and perhaps they, to some extent, would even accept that they might be slightly lower or you know, maybe the returns won't be higher. Do, do you think it is actually an effective way to achieve the, 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 the stated goals, let's say, you know, reducing slavery in the supply chain or intru- ensuring better environmental outcomes for a business through this investing pressure? I think it's, it's, it's very much a distinct possibility. I have heard stories that um, impact investors do do very well. I've also heard the converse story uh, where startup funds that actually fund what you might call repugnant innovation. So um, this particular startup that I'm thinking of funds uh, vaping companies and all that sort of stuff, um, they also claim to be earning massive returns. So there probably are niche parts of the market where with very specialised knowledge you can actually do particularly well. For most investors, however, I would say buy a diversified portfolio, um, buy a passive tracking fund, diversified portfolio, and you will do as well as you can. Because the biggest... And of course, ch- we're not here today to provide investment <laughs> advice. Please, please I haven't speak- named any single company. Please, please also speak to your financial <laughs> advisor before, uh, before yes. taking six, uh, Professor Sink's advice. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the most important thing is that... Always remember that if it were possible to solve social problems profitably, those social problems would have already have been solved. Um, and that's also one of the biggest challenges against ESG from, a, from an investment fund portfolio because investment managers, if they genuinely thought that they could earn a, a superior return by undertaking these activities, they wouldn't need to be forced to undertake those activities. So social problems will be solved when they become profitable to be solved. Um, or alternatively, perhaps some of the way to solve an environmental problem is through policy. You know, if, if it is a it, one thing that worries me about issue funding to some extent, or even um, stakeholder capitalism, is that it, it, it overpromises. It says you you rather than dealing with the actual underlying collective action problem, which is let's say you do need a carbon tax to solve climate change because everyone needs to pay carbon tax. What you do is you kind of reallocate some of the investment funds. A company claims that it's solving something like no single company can solve climate change. Um, and it's not really the right way to go, and potentially even un- undermine support for kind of free markets in the process because people see companies as promising something they can't deliver. Mm. Um, and I think you're seeing this to some extent on the right, which is now they're seeing these companies promise all these kind of but, but maybe perhaps woke things or environmental things that they don't think they can deliver on, they don't think they should deliver on. Um, they're being all these com- big companies are being attacked now, so you've you've got this kind of anti the, the backlash against the issues is kind of anti-capitalist move, and it's not really clear that it is the role of companies to try to solve those issues. Well, there's a whole bunch of issues in in, in there, Matthew, that we should probably try and unpack, because um, in addition to companies over-promising what they can't really solve, very often they have been forced by governments to make those promises, Mm. or they've been forced by governments to have additional objectives or to comply with all sorts of rules and regulations that they honestly just cannot comply with. So... um, there, there, there certainly is a, a need to have a long, hard look at what companies do, what they promise to do, and what governments do and what they require companies to do as well. So um, I'm going to say there's enough blame here to go around uh, for, for, uh, for everybody. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that you kind of mentioned environmental issues and what have you, because a lot of environmental issues very often rely on having very distinctive local knowledge. Um, now, uh, CO2 pollution is one of those that's a genuinely a global problem, but many other environmental issues are actually quite local 
problems, where even very often large multinational corporations or even big national companies are probably not quite the right venue to address those local issues. Um, so I've, I've recently, and this is a bit of gratuitous advertising, um, <laughs> I've recently published a paper in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization where I make the argument that blockchain technology could actually be used to harness local information to solve local environmental problems or any other local Can social I, problem El that, that you Ros might actually have. Eleanor yes. Rossburn on the uh, on the blockchain, is that what this is? Um, well, yes, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of Eleanor Ostrom. Um, but it, not. I've actually made more of a Hayekian kind of argument. Um, so I actually riff off the socialist calculation debate, which mm. I know many listeners would be very familiar with. Um, and But I have another paper where I'm, I'm applying Eleanor Ostrom's ideas, also in a blockchain context, to solving local issues. Mm. Um, and I kind of think that's probably got a lot more promise than sort of big corporations being required to do ESG stuff, which they're not really suited to do and they can't really do and they don't do it very well. And we, we, we have this astonishing situation where now governments and activists are demanding that companies do things and make promises that they can't deliver on and then government regulators come along and fine them for not <laughs> delivering on what they never could do. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we, we have this whole nasty, vicious cycle of of expectations and behaviours that are entirely inconsistent with the idea of a company trying to earn a profit by selling goods and services to willing customers. And another interesting element of this, I don't know whether you're saying that, I think it was the University of uh, Pennsylvania academics who looked at this, this question of w what actually happens in practice through ASG in terms of where the funds go. So the, the argument they were effectively making was you, you, you have a massive reallocation of capital, let's say, away from you know dirty coal and gas and, and fossil fuel companies, and you move that towards basically tech companies, because particularly on the environmental side, they have much better ratings because they can um, power their relatively small amount of electricity, can come from green sources, and their ESG score is very high. But the unintended consequence of that is that um, the potentially the, the dirtier companies, which aren't in the ESG ratings, only become dirtier, because they have uh, less investment into them, they can't Put, put their money into the best capital. They can't try to reduce their environmental emissions. If you're if you're some kind of manufacturer, there's probably things you you can you can have a lot of impact by improving your internal processes mm. that aren't particularly green to begin with. Um, you can you can achieve something. There's not much more you know Google and Spotify can do to mm. make themselves greener. So you actually lead to allocation of capital away from things that actually need it in order to green yes. themselves up or make themselves more efficient. Where you could have an improvement. Um, uh, and a similar problem to that, of course, is that when you actually make it difficult for public funds and, and public markets to invest in, in a lot of industries, you end up with family offices investing in them or Middle Eastern royalty and all mm. this sort of stuff. So you actually end up having what may otherwise be very good profitable businesses being owned, not by the public for the public benefit, but for already very rich people um, who probably, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to say they don't need to be even more richer, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, you, you, you're kind of taking away from the teachers and the policemen and the firefighters and all those people who actually would probably need a bit more of a boost in their pension plans than, say, the royal family of some Middle Eastern yeah. um, autocracy. I'm also intrigued by the, the some of the kind of oil and gas majors selling relatively dirty, let's say, oil wells that 
at the moment aren't very environmentally unfriendly, they get them off their books so that they don't look as bad. But they, they keep operating, just somebody else operates yes. them, and they operate them for longer. Yes. So, so the, the big name you've heard of no longer owns that particular oil well, but somebody else does, and they're yes. probably doing something worse to it yes. as well. So you can, you can have a whole bunch of yes, so un, unintended consequences. Yeah, and, and, and we have these perverse outcomes. Um, and these perverse outcomes come from people very often genuinely trying to do the right thing, mm. but not going about it in the correct manner or not going about it thinking through the entire consequential chain of their choices. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like trying to improve your um, kind of uh, male, female gender pay gap by just firing a whole lot of un, uh, lowly paid women. Because <laughs> that, yes. statistically that will make it like, look like your, your women and men are, are paid uh, more equally. Uh, yes, 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 yes. And, and, and it's exactly the opposite intention of what you actually want. Yeah. And I kind of think as you become more economically literate, you become more aware of these unintended consequences. And unfortunately, when you try to warn people of these unintended consequences, you'll get told, oh, it's a bit of a conspiracy theory. Whereas in actual fact, uh, um, very often, these unintended consequences come to bear and then we have another round very very often of government intervention trying to fix the mistakes of last time mm. and you simply end up compounding errors. Do you think we've reached peak ESG? Uh, you get the sense in which you, there's a lot of criticism, of, obviously from people like yourself on the right, but I think there's also concern from regulators about greenwashing, as we've discussed. Um, I, I think Larry Fink recently did a, a podcast for the Wall Street Journal where he, he's refocused on profit and they, they, um, Larry Fink doesn't talk as much about ESG as he has in the past. Do you think that we've kind of moved on from that stage? Uh, certainly that's where the public perception is. Um, um, since I, I wrote the, the paper a couple of months ago and it's been going through editing and publication process and what have you, um, the Financial Times, for example, has run a few articles in the last few weeks criticising ESG investments. Um, and the, the, the Financial Times was a big spruker of, of, of ESG investments. Um, the Wall Street Journal has always been somewhat sceptical. Um, they've become more sceptical, but certainly... Um, even six months ago, kind of saying ESG is a bad idea uh, would have been met with a bit of pushback and scepticism. Uh, when Scott and I started writing our paper, it was con we thought we were being incredibly edgy. Um, <laughs> and we now kind of think, well, it's, it's almost mainstream, the, 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 the arguments that we're making. How uncomfortable is that making you feel? Uh, <laughs> you need to, I suppose <clears throat> you discussed this a bit in your paper, which is what to do about it, because it's even if perhaps it, we have reached peak ESG, it's kind of hard to say. Sometimes you feel like you've reached peak of these things and they, they come back for another round. But there is still going to be a lot of this going on. There's still at least, I suppose, some public demand for it. There's certainly a lot of investors who are institutional investors that are going to keep in doing this, whatever you do. What, what do you think can be done to improve ESG investing? Um, so a few obvious things. I think where there are actual cases of, of fraud and market manipulation that the regulators should actually mm. clamp down on that, uh, that is actually their job. Um, so um, in the very first instance, the regulators should be doing their jobs. I think also we should introduce very clear rules around pension funds and superannuation funds that their sole function is to maximise the returns for their beneficiaries. Um, now, that to a certain extent, I would also say that that would include a ban on um, a lot of donations that they do, a lot of uh, um, um, sort of kinds of advertising that they do. So very often, for example, you may see your superannuation fund uh, sponsoring a football stadium or, 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 or a team or things that, like this that. Is, this is the Australian pension, compulsory yes, pension Yes, 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 a, a compulsory pension fund. Um, I, I don't think they should be doing that at all. Uh, that, that is not in the, in the, in the interests of, of their members. 
Um, Vivek Ramaswamy has got a very interesting idea, which which lawyers would absolutely hate. Um, and this is he wants to reintroduce what was called the ultra vires rule. Now, the ultra vires rule was that a public company could only act in the way in which was specified in its articles of association. Now, this led to a great deal of of litigation and confusion, and I. I was going to say the English-speaking world, but almost I think the entire world at some point eventually abolished the ultra-virus rule. Um, and his argument is that the ultra-virus rule is actually an important part of the social compact between public corporations and general society. So he said public corporations are given the mandate of maximising profits um, as long as they obey the, the law of the land, which is the Milton Friedman rule. And he also says they get given limited liability. And he said if limited liability is a is a huge privilege and benefit. But you should not misuse your limited liability to expand your operations beyond what you said you were going to do in your articles of association. So his, his claim is that re restoring the ultra-virus rule would actually constrain a lot of the activities of, of public corporations and force them to focus on maximizing profits. Um, I like this idea. I, I think it's well worth having a long, hard look at it. Uh, whenever I mention to any of my lawyer friends, they, they immediately say, no, 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 this is a terrible idea. Mm. And, and I remember even as a commerce student, we had to do corporations law, and we, we covered about six weeks of the, the everything that went wrong in the, in the ultra-virus rule in the bad old days. Um, but nonetheless, I, I think it's well worth having a long, hard look at restoring it or bringing something like it. Um, because... We kind of now live in a world where people think that if you work for a corporation, when you sign your contract of employment, that all of a sudden you're signing away all your other civil rights, which I think is exactly wrong. Um, I, I think we are, com we are a combination. We are employees, we are investors, we are shareholders, we are customers. We are also citizens. And I don't think that we can contract away our rights um, which many many people seem to think that we can do. So I, I think we need to have a look at this whole notion of where we are regulated via corporations in ways which we could never be regulated via the political system. I, I think uh, Ramashwamy's got a very good argument there. I think, we, as I say, I, I, I do think we would have to look very carefully yeah. at tracking all of that through because that would be a big change from how our, our society is currently yeah. uh, um, organised. To, to push back on that slightly, is before that kind of, I suppose, more negative, you, you can't do anything beyond this approach, is there not first and foremost a role of, of getting rid of all the positive duties on companies that are coming? I, I don't know how much is happening uh, where, where you are in Australia, but certainly in the UK, the Labor government changed the Corporations Act to include things about social purpose. Yes. Um, and uh, not as not as the primary objective of a company, but certainly as an added a part of the Corporations Act. At the same time, you're seeing an extraordinary amount of pressure from all sorts of different regulators, particularly uh, something like the Financial Conduct Regulator when it comes to diversity and inclusion, when it comes to climate. Is it not, before we, we think about trying mm. to mandate companies act in uh, yes. for, for a purpose of profit or whatever you might want them to do, isn't it the first thing to just stop doing all the things that are telling them to go the other direction. Um, look, uh, um, one of my favourite quotes is always cut red tape, cut green tape, cut blue tape, cut taxes, cut regulation, do it again. Um, so, um, yes, I, I would always sort of start off there. Um, but, but beyond that, I, I think we actually need to have a, a purpose in actually restoring the balance in civil society to where corporations actually 
aim to make a profit while satisfying consumer needs. The other thing that I would that, that, that I would say, um, and it's great to say this here in London, uh, there's one part in Ludwig von Mises' great book, Human Action, that I disagree with. And he's got a whole long chapter on the glories of the market and how well it does and all this sort of stuff. And he finishes off by saying, the market does not need propagandists. This is like going to St. Paul's Cathedral and you see the epitaph of Sir Christopher Wren and it says in Latin, if you want to see his glory, look around you. And his argument is, if you want to see how glorious the market economy is, just look around you. Well, people do look around and they don't see a glorious economy there. They see all, they, you know, the, um, sort of waste and inefficiencies and externalities and all this sort of stuff. So... First and foremost, I kind of think the market does need propagandists. We do need to go out and say, look how awesome our economy is. Look how awesome our society is. Go into any supermarket and just look around at the goods and services that you can buy from all around the world at affordable prices and know that the average person in the world today who lives with indoor plumbing and running water and electricity and lighting and heating probably has a more comfortable life than, say, Louis the Fourteenth. Let alone open up your smartphone and start messaging with your friends all over the world and watching Netflix movies, let Absolutely. alone go, yes. to the, go to the spice aisle. I think, I think I saw something quite good, which is what would be most shocking today about someone from 200 years ago if they just looked at a modern spice aisle, seeing how much <laughs> money they would have paid for access to those spices. Those spices, yes. So, if, if nothing else, there's yes. a small, a small yes. thing So, so we, need, we do need these propagandists. Yeah. Um, and and uh, we should be these propagandists. We should actually be telling a better story about how well we are doing um, and how well the market economy does and how we don't need big corporations and governments to be imposing their ideological preferences on us because it's our job as consumers to tell companies what we want, not them to tell us. Indeed, the, the pursuit of profit is not something that is, is done in the abstract. It's done by serving other people it and is. by giving them something that it they is. want. It, and the pursuit of profit is itself a moral imperative. It is actually a moral thing to pursue a profit. And we've kind of got into the world of thinking that itself is immoral, which is why we need all these ESG things mm. built on top of it. We simply do not. Well, Professor Sinclair Davidson from RMIT University, thank you so much for joining the IEA podcast. For those who are interested in learning more, you have an excellent Twitter feed. If you want to learn more about this ESG topic, the, his paper, Who Benefits the Real Impact of ESG Investing, which is written with Scott Hargraves, has now been released as part of the Volume 1, The Barriers of Prosperity from the ARC uh, conference research strand. Um, please, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe in your chosen podcast provider, or you can learn more about the IEA by visiting iea.org.uk.